Well, we've been going through the book of John, and we have three weeks left in John's gospel, and this morning we get to look at a man who I feel has received a bad rep. Um, our passage begins on the evening of Resurrection Sunday, and it ends on the following Sunday with this dialogue that has greatly shaped the identity of a disciple named Thomas. Thomas, unfortunately, is probably best known for this dialogue as Doubting Thomas. In fact, if you were to take out your phone, which you can, uh, and start typing the word doubting into some search engine, when you get to the I in doubting, the number one autocomplete is Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas is even found in Wikipedia. It is a noun, which means a person who is skeptical and refuses to believe something without proof. Let me just say, I I think we all have moments where we doubt. Uh, Last week, when um, I was working through this passage from the beginning of chapter 20 and and, and getting to look at the resurrection, and I like looking at all the different gospels so I can kind of see, you know, these four stories kind of pointing to one unified story. And there's a moment when I was reading one of the other gospels, and, and it just seemed like these stories didn't match up with John's account. And I found my spirit getting really troubled, like, oh my goodness, my whole life I've devoted to is all like coming apart. And this is all like, you know, you know how your brain just starts going. This is all maybe five seconds conversation in my head thinking through, is the resurrection actually true? Can I trust the Bible? And so there's moments of doubt, and I just had to stop and just just start looking at these different stories, look at study Bibles, did a, you know, an internet search, and then you see like, oh, yeah, that makes complete sense. There's no need for me to you know, leave the faith, resign as a pastor. Like, but you have these moments where you just maybe doubt, and that's Thomas. Um, and so in my opinion, I think Thomas gets this bad rap. According to church history, Thomas was the disciple who was responsible for taking the gospel to India. And yet he's not remembered as missional Thomas or bold Thomas, but rather doubting Thomas. And maybe that's how you think of Thomas. If it is, I just want to ask you this morning to just for a moment enter into his world. Think about what he's experiencing. I mean, this has been a crazy week in Thomas's life. Let's just think through the last five days. So Thomas's teacher slash rabbi slash friend had gathered his 12 disciples of the past three years together, Thomas being one of them. They're, they're there together um, in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover meal. From Thomas' perspective, I think up to that point, everything was going great. I mean, sure, there was some drama with the, the, with the Pharisees, Sadducees, some leaders, but overall, things are going great. Um, Jesus' followings were, were growing There's just a lot of um, buzz around about Jesus, and it had been amazing to be one of his disciples. But from Thomas's perspective, you go to like the Passover meal, and then you hear Jesus say during that time that there's going to be one of you 12 that's going to betray me, and then another's going to deny me. I'm guessing Thomas and the other disciples would have all been in shock. What? No no way. That, That can't be. Who would, who would ever betray you, Lord Jesus? 
And then they begin maybe to look around the room and, yeah, is it you? Is it you? And trying to figure out who Jesus is talking about. Then Jesus just plain out says to the one um, beside him who asks him, who is it, Lord? Who we think is probably John. He says to John, and maybe others who were near could hear this, it is he to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So they hear this, and then Judas leaves, and he returns within a few hours while they're out in the garden um, with an army, possibly as many as 600 soldiers, to arrest this one man. Judas would later commit suicide, and then we find out that Peter is the one who denies Jesus three times. A few hours after that, Jesus dies horrific death. Three days later, Thomas hears that Jesus' body has been stolen. Later that evening, the disciples tell Thomas that they had seen the risen Jesus. Can you pause for a moment and see why Thomas might have some real trust issues? The last few days have been crazy. And what if, out of all the disciples, what if Thomas was closest with Judas? Maybe they had like this unique relationship. Now, the, the Bible doesn't say this. I'm just speculating. If he was close to Judas, maybe, maybe that was kind of like the one he connected with out of the 12. You, you could see if, if Thomas really felt like he knew Judas the best, and then Judas goes rogue, you could see how that would really mess with Thomas. So let's read our passage this morning, and hopefully you will maybe see Thomas in a different light. So we're in John 20, starting in verse 19. On the evening that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of these disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let's pray. Father, as your words were just read, I pray that your spirit would be at work, 
Lord, that you would help us to not doubt your work in our life, that we would not doubt what you've done for us. So may we trust, even in the pew or chair we're sitting in now, we're placing trust, we, we sat down with a sense of faith that this object would hold us. So Lord, I pray that we would put a deeper trust in you that we know that you hold us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we see in verse 19 that our setting takes place during the evening of the resurrection. So Resurrection Sunday, that evening, disciples hiding out in a locked room. I guess you could say it's been a pretty big day for them as well. A lot has happened since the morning. You know, they went to bed Saturday night thinking, Savior's dead, what are we going to do? Sunday they wake up, I'm guessing this is not how they imagined their day to go. So the disciples are gathered together, perhaps could be this exact same room where they gathered a few days before with Jesus for the Passover meal. We read that the door is locked for the fear of the Jews. They're probably thinking that since the Romans have just executed Jesus, there's a really good chance that the Jewish leaders may desire to eliminate all of the rest of Jesus' closest followers. But as the door is locked, Jesus miraculously just appears in the room. Now, a lot has been said about this. Most commentators take this to mean that the resurrected body of Jesus, in some mysterious and amazing way, is able to materialize through the wall. So I don't know if he just walks through. I mean, this is obviously a, a miracle because um, you know, a physical body you can't walk through a physical wall. Maybe he teleports. We don't know. Others have suggested that he simply opened the locked door and walked into the room. Well, that interpretation is, I think it's possible. I personally lean more towards the first, where Jesus either walks through the wall or simply just appears into the room. Uh, I think Jesus has done similar things in John's gospel. So this, yes, it's shocking, but we have, we have seen it. Um, you remember when the disciples were out on the Sea of Galilee and uh, Jesus had stayed back to pray, and then all of a sudden he appeared there on the water, just walking on the water. Uh, so this would be been something pretty similar to that. And if this is what happened, then we know that the stone being rolled away from last week's passage was more for the disciples to come in than it was to help Jesus get out. I mean, he didn't need the stone to be rolled away. But regardless, however, he gets into the room, there he is, visible, with his wounds in his hands and his side. So Jesus appears in the room with his frightened group of disciples, probably just 10 of the 12 disciples. Judas is no more. Thomas, for whatever reason, we learn that he's not currently with them. And then Jesus just supernaturally comes in. If we're not careful, I think far too often when we discuss a passage like this, we can get caught up thinking about, you know, this miracle. Jesus just appears into a locked room, and rightly so. It's pretty amazing, right? Like, that would have been incredible to be one of those ten men in that room. And there could have been women in there, too. We don't know. But at least the ten men are there. You're afraid. The door is locked. Then all of a sudden, Jesus is just there. 
Pretty amazing. But I think there's an even greater miracle found in this passage. Jesus says in verse 19, peace be with you. And as incredible it is to think about Jesus just appearing in that room that evening, I think the point that John wants us to marvel about, the greatest miracle that's happening in this page is that you and I can have peace with the creator God. Three times in this passage, we hear Jesus say the phrase, peace be with you. This is a huge statement. It's monumental. Romans chapter 1 reminds us that God's wrath is ready to be poured out upon mankind. Each one of us has rebelled. You deserve the wrath of God from Romans 1. I deserve the wrath of God. But, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our own trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. See, this is how John the Baptist, back in chapter 1, announced Christ's coming. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, even in his arrival, in his advent, there was a foreshadowing of the Lamb that would be slain for our sins so that we may have peace with God. So let us not get distracted and think that walking through a wall or teleporting into a room is the greatest miracle going on in this passage. The greatest miracle is that Jesus had the authority to appease God's wrath and offer peace between man and God. But how can Jesus, how can Jesus offer peace to us on behalf of God? Isn't that interesting? Only the offended party can forgive someone. You and I have sinned against God. But here we have Jesus saying that we now have peace. How in the world can he say this? This would be like if you were walking down the street one day and some dude jumps you, beats you up pretty bad, bad enough to where you're in the hospital. Not only does this guy hospitalize you, he also takes your wallet, steals your phone. And let's say I come to visit you in the hospital. And I tell you that I found the guy who did this. And I tell you that I paid this man a visit. And then I tell you that everything's okay because I forgave him for you. How would that make you feel? What would you say to me? Well, you'd probably feel upset with me. And you'd probably say something like, how dare you forgive him? You, you have no right to do that. This is because only the offended party can forgive. So here's Jesus. He appears to the disciples and he says, peace be with you. But you wronged God. So what is Jesus insinuating here? He's insinuating that you have wronged him. He is saying that he is God. Jesus is offering peace to you on behalf of God because he is God. That's his point here. And notice that the first words from Jesus weren't, 
Are you kidding me? Didn't I tell you over and over that I was going to rise again? Now look at all of you, hiding inside, scared to death. That wasn't his first words to them. He doesn't scold them. He doesn't even seem to be upset with them. The very first thing he says to them is, peace be with you. Then in verse 20, disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. See, peace with God leads to joy. Christians should be the most joy-filled people in the entire world. We don't think about this enough, but you and I, like we have, we have peace. Okay, peace means host- the removal of hostility. It's gone. You have peace. Not, not a truth, but peace, difference. So you have peace with God, the creator of the universe. That should lead to a joy that stirs your soul. That no matter what circumstances come into your life, that joy should be unshakable. That you have peace with the creator God. Have you ever thought about what that means for you? It means that you can rest well at night. No matter how your day went, you can lay your head down on the pillow knowing that God is at peace with your soul. It means that when everything else in your life seems to be falling apart, that those things really don't matter. Because once you take your final breath, I promise you that everything will work out in your favor if you are in Christ. It means that when it's all said and done, you are victorious. It means that you don't have to walk around in fear, wondering how God feels about you. You know, does he love me? Does he love me not? You are loved, and your sins have been atoned for. Before Jesus speaks peace, the disciples, they were locked up in a room afraid. Then he appears, speaks peace to them, and then their hearts were glad when they saw the Lord. See, they are no longer blind, but now they see. They see the Lord. This is something that only God can do. Only God can open up the eyes of a sinner. In verse 21, we see peace being extended again. And then John's much shorter version of the Great Commission. Usually when we think of the Great Commission, we think of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28. But here we see a shortened, revised commission. Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. If Jesus' earthly mission is now complete, then the disciples' mission is just now getting started. Jesus commissions them for mission, not to hide in a room, not to have the American dream, to retire early, but he commissions them for mission. Just as the Father sent Jesus, now Jesus is sending you. Isn't that amazing? Every one of you, you have a purpose to glorify God, to live out your life, to advance his kingdom. And you've each been uniquely gifted to bring something to this side, to this kingdom, uh, that maybe we're missing without you. 
That's why I love looking at the body, thinking about the church as the body of Christ. The body has many parts, many members. They each serve different things. Uh, A couple Sundays ago, I guess it was two weeks from today, I was next door in the Catholic church playing basketball, and I blew my calf out. And so for the next week, I had a boot on, walking around, reminding my, like, just remembering that my leg is not right. Something is wrong with that member of my body. And other parts of my body, my left leg had to carry more of the weights, and my left leg was hurting by the end of the week. This is us. We're the body. Just as God sent Jesus on mission, now Jesus is sending you on mission. You play a part in advancing the kingdom here in Huntington, West Virginia. And through your prayers, you're advancing the kingdom around the world. So to the Tajik people this morning, they were blessed by us just stopping and praying for them. We've never met them. I'm guessing maybe you have. We may never go there, but one day we'll be around the throne forever worshiping with people from the church in Tajikistan. You go from enemies of God to now being messengers of God. You are safe from something, the wrath of God, to something, the mission of God. And Jesus tells them, he's been preparing them. He said, hey, you're going to have tribulations. And I think this is part of what he was talking about. He said, you're going to have enemies. They're not going to like you because they did not like me. And this is why in that farewell discourse that he spent, you know, like three chapters for us, where we just saw Jesus' words, where he had just this long conversation preparing them for his death, And in that, he says, this is why I must leave. That leaving was to their advantage. This was back in chapter 16. Jesus says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So when we were back in chapter 16, we spent time talking about the Holy Spirit, his role in preparing you and helping you be on mission with God. And so this is why Jesus must leave. So he can send the helper because they're going to need help to complete this mission. They cannot do it on their own. Neither can we. And in verse 22, we see them receiving the Holy Spirit. Verse 22 says, And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any... It is withheld. Again, verse 23 sounds a lot like um, in Matthew's gospel, this idea like um, what you loose on earth will be loose in heaven, whatever you bound on earth will be bound in heaven. This idea of the church um, having authority on earth. Verse 22 has confused a lot of theologians over the years. It's received a lot of even more recent attention from Pentecostal charismatic backgrounds. Uh, the Pentecostal movement has argued that this is the first indwelling of the Spirit. And then in the book of Acts at Pentecost, this is the second filling of the Spirit. Um, if you have Pentecostal family or maybe friends, maybe you've heard them speak this way. Maybe you grew up in Pentecostal church. You've, maybe you've heard this kind of language, like this first indwelling of the Spirit, 
second indwelling of the Spirit. Um, they believe that you are saved, which means you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then there's this second filling or indwelling where you begin to speak in tongues. But I don't think this is the way this verse should be understood. It's not been understood that way throughout church history, or even how most theologians today believe this verse um, should be understood. Um, throughout church history, guys like John Calvin comments, they were only sprinkled by his grace, but were not filled with full power. So that's how Calvin understood this verse. Basically saying that they just received a little bit of the Holy Spirit for now. It's like maybe a little appetizer just to kind of hold you off till the Holy Spirit fully comes and acts. But I think a better way to understand this verse is just to look at all of Scripture. Has God done things like this in other places? Yeah, he has. Um, this would be much like what we've seen the Holy Spirit's work in the Old Testament. Prior to Pentecost, that when the Holy Spirit comes... There's a temporary filling of the Holy Spirit given to someone to complete a task. Uh, and so we see that throughout the Old Testament. In about 40 days from this, at Pentecost, the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit came to empower the saints to complete their mission. But here, during the first week of the resurrection, notice that, that their first gospel conversation, so they received this Holy Spirit, I think it's just for this small moment until we see in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So Jesus tells them to wait in Jerusalem until I send this promise. Um, and while you're there, I, I will you know, put this Spirit temporarily on you until he's there permanently. But notice that their first gospel conversation, notice that it didn't go very well. I mean, who was their first gospel conversation with? So Jesus comes and Say, hey, peace be with you. I'm sending, just as Father sent me, now I'm sending you. So then at some point in the week, they go out and they see Thomas. Thomas, you, you missed it, man. Like, Jesus showed up in this room. The, I, I promise the door was locked. He just shows up. And so the very first gospel conversation is with someone who's very religious. I mean, it's Thomas. He's walked with Jesus for the same you know, time that they have. They've seen, he's seen the same miracles that they've seen. But notice that the first gospel conversation didn't go very well. That should encourage you. When you share the gospel with someone, even if they're religious, it may not go as you expect. And so I think this is amazing. This is very encouraging to me that the, I don't know if it's the very first one, but one of their first gospel conversations is with Thomas, and Thomas still doesn't believe them. So don't be shocked when people might not believe what you say. Look down at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. We don't know where he was. Did he just step out to go use the bathroom? Did he go shopping, come back like, oh, man. So Thomas was not with them. Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hands in the side, I will never believe. How? We don't know if this is hyperbole here. But you could see, this is hard for Thomas to believe. He saw he was dead. He was buried. 
Sure, Lazarus was raised not long before this, right? So he's seen it kind of happen before. But it was Jesus, the one who raised Lazarus. Now the one who had the power to raise is now dead. So Thomas, I can't believe it. I just, it's going to take a lot to make me believe what you guys are saying. Maybe Thomas thinks they've seen an angel. Maybe it really wasn't Jesus. Maybe they're just a little bit confused. I picture the disciples here maybe drawing out the three circles, right? Maybe Peter told Thomas about God's design, how everything was perfect. Then he drew the second circle, explained how brokenness entered the world, and now we see brokenness in our own lives. Maybe he lists some of those things, how he sees brokenness. Then he told Thomas, the only way that we're going to see that brokenness repaired is to believe the gospel. So he drew the third circle, wrote out gospel. <clears throat> I can see Peter asking Thomas, you know, which, which circle do you identify with, Thomas? But Thomas doesn't trust the gospel. He needs, desires, longs for more evidence. He says he will not believe until he sees the marks of the nails in his hands, until he can reach out and touch his mark on his side. Without evidence, Thomas says, I'm, without that, not a chance. In fact, he says he will never believe. So here we have doubting Thomas. I mean, I get it, right? I, I truly do. I mean, he's doubting. He was one of the 12 disciples, and now he doubts the resurrection. So maybe everyone was right about Thomas being doubting Thomas. Maybe this is how he should be known. But I just want to think for a moment when did the other disciples believe? Did you catch that back in verse 20? In verse 20, we read that it was after, it was after Jesus had shown them his hands and his side. And they saw Jesus and they were glad. Last week, we saw the author, John, believed once he saw the tomb was empty. See, none of them believed on Saturday. They all doubted. But it's poor old Thomas who gets identified as doubting Thomas. He gets identified for his unbelief. But Thomas' story doesn't end here in verse 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. Whenever you see double negatives in the Greek, that's it's to bring emphasis. So here, notice how Jesus phrased this. Do not disbelieve. He's bringing attention but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not yet seen and yet have believed. So eight days later, the following Sunday, they're all gathered again inside a locked room. 
And Jesus shows up again, and this time he singles out Thomas. In verse 27, the Bible says, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Now, it doesn't seem like Thomas accepts this invitation to touch. But rather, Thomas immediately responds with the fullest Christological confession in this entire gospel, maybe outside of the prologue. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Now, it's true that Thomas calling Jesus Lord could simply be this respectable term like sir. Lord can be translated as sir. But there is no other way to understand Thomas calling Jesus my God. The Greek word used here for God is theos, who we get theology from. It's reserved for God and God alone. Thomas is ascribing deity to Jesus. And notice that Jesus does not rebuke him for him. Now, some have argued that maybe Thomas was a, a bit confused. This could have actually been just an angel. But there's a serious problem with that interpretation. Have you ever noticed in Scripture how angels respond when people begin to bow down and worship them? They rebuke them. They say things like, get up. You must not do that. Worship God alone. But here, Jesus embraces it. He receives Thomas's worship. Why? Because he is the God-man that was sent to atone for our sin and offer us peace with God. Jesus rightfully reserves worship. Then Jesus closes this narrative by saying that all of you here this morning, if you've put your trust in Christ, that all of you are even more blessed than these disciples. Why? He says in verse 29, Jesus said to them, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So I'm, I think it's safe to say this, that none of you here this morning has seen the hands inside of Christ in person, yet you all, for some reason, believe that he has risen. You have believed the testimony of scriptures. That you've put your faith your whole life is based on this book. But oftentimes we want to see actual proof. And maybe when you were coming to Christ, maybe there was some of that wrestling like Thomas. You know, I, I want more evidence, Lord. I, I want to see something. Lord, show yourself to me. Give me a sign. Have you asked that before? Like, God, if you're real, give, give me a sign. There's a story found in Luke chapter 16 where there's this man, he's suffering in Hades, and he can see Abraham, and he begs Abraham to send someone back to his father's house to warn his family about the realities of eternal suffering. And in Luke chapter 16, verse 29, Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. So this man wanted his family to see proof. 
If someone from the dead shows up to their house, surely then they would listen. But Abraham says something so profound. Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, meaning the Old Testament, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, what is Jesus' point here? His point is that the Word of God has more power to convince the unregenerate man than a zombie does. The Word of God is so powerful to help us to clearly see God for who He is. Is that how you look at this? I'm guessing most of us would want to see that sign. You raise someone from the dead. There's a cemetery right over here. If you're leaving today and you just, Lord, I, if, if you're real, raise someone from the dead. And God says, you still wouldn't believe. Even if you saw, you remember, you remember this, was, this was crazy. In the raising of Lazarus, you remember there were people there because it was, they're still in that mourning time, uh, of mourning the loss of Lazarus. Lazarus was raised from the dead, and it said many believed that day, but some left. They saw Lazarus. They were at the funeral. Lazarus is now alive. Some left the funeral still doubting. Jesus' point is, if you're not going to believe this, you're going to believe the words of God, you're not going to believe someone being raised from the dead. There's power in God's word. Hebrews 4 talks about the power of God in, in his word. And I just wonder, what would it look like if we as a church were meeting up with each other and simply reading the Bible and praying together? What if... Maybe once a week or once every other week. If we just met up with one or two others, maybe before work or during lunch, maybe late in the evening, and just read the Bible together and prayed together. What if you asked someone from work, maybe someone you've been praying for, maybe you know, when we've done the Who's Your One series, when we're praying for that one in our life, we want to see them come to know Christ. What if we were just willing to ask them, like, hey, would you want to read the Bible maybe before or after work, even during lunch? You were praying for the lost. Maybe there's moments where we kind of segue in and talk about the gospel. There's something about reading the words of God with people. I truly believe that when we begin, when we begin to meet together with one another, discipling each other, I just know that Huntington will be radically changed for the glory of Christ. Maybe you're here this morning, you're like, that sounds great, but I don't even know where to begin. I don't know what to read. Maybe just start with, God, with, with John's gospel. We see John's purpose for writing this book. I think this is our same purpose that we would want to read the Bible with someone. His purpose is in verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book which is amazing to think about. But these, 
These signs are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's writing these things so that you believe that Jesus is the Christ, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So if if we're going to complete the mission that God has for us, then we have to see each other as a vital piece to this entire mission. My hope for you this morning is that as we've walked through this passage, maybe you have a new light, maybe a different understanding of Thomas. Maybe you won't be so hard on him. Hopefully when we get to heaven, we we don't call him Doubting Thomas. But my hope for you this morning is that, that you would have the same response as the disciples did in verse 20. Then the disciples were glad when they saw Jesus. I pray by faith you have seen the resurrected Jesus and your hearts are filled with joy and gladness. And so now you are left to finish the mission. That's what's left. Jesus completed what he was sent to do and now as the Father has sent him, even so he is sending you. But you're not going alone. But that doesn't mean that the person to your left or right is going with you either. You can't take people with you wherever you go, but God has given you the helper, the Holy Spirit. He has given you his power to go and complete what you have been called to do. But none of this would be possible if Jesus hadn't first come if he didn't arrive, if we didn't have the first advent, if he hadn't come, lived a perfect, sinless life, died on the cross on our behalf, and now risen and reigned from heaven, then none of this would matter. But since I believe all those things are true, that we have a book that we can trust, then we are sent out on mission, that we live with a purpose, that tomorrow, or maybe you're going to work later today, maybe... You wake up tomorrow, I pray that you wake up with a purpose, that you're just not going to work, that you're not just going to class, but you're going on a mission, that you're taking the gospel into a place that's broken, that needs to hear the hope of Jesus Christ, that he is alive, that he conquered death, and he can conquer whatever's going on in in their world. So this morning... We get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Jesus commands us to do this in remembrance of him, that we gather, and here at our church, it's the first Sunday of the month, and this is when we gather to pause to remember what Jesus has done for us, that we don't just go out on mission on our own, that we don't think Huntington's going to be changed because of we worked hard that Huntington is being changed because what Christ has done, that he's died on our behalf, he's given us peace with our Heavenly Father, that he sent his Holy Spirit once he ascended back to heaven. And now, so we gather this morning, and we get to look back to that Advent to know what he has done for us, that we're not going out alone, that he is still Emmanuel, God with us. So this morning, I invite you to come as... Jesus has invited you to come to the table. Uh, if you're a guest with us, if you are um, someone who considers himself 
a Christian trusting in Christ, and we invite you to come. You don't have to be a, a member. Um, you'll take two cups. They're stacked together. The bottom cup has the bread. The bread represents his body that was broken. Uh, that's what Thomas wanted to reach out and touch. So you get to touch the body today and reflect that his body was broken for you. And then the top cup represents his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of our sins, that he had to die, that something had to die to atone for our sins. And when that blood should have been ours, Jesus took our place. So let's reflect, let's remember, let's celebrate what he's done for us this morning. So whenever you're ready, you come and take up the table.